Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, hey there, guys. Good morning. My name is Byron, and I get the great privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. And I'm super excited because every single week, Jesus keeps doing amazing things in the life of our church. It's just absolutely wonderful and incredible to be able to see what Jesus is doing here at Redemption, that every single week we have new guests, we have new friends, new family, people coming into the church for their first time, maybe for the first time in a long time. They're getting connected, they're getting involved, they're meeting Jesus, and they're experiencing life change that only comes from him. And it's wonderful to see because every single week we have next steps during our second service, and it's an opportunity for you to get involved, discover your purpose, find your place, make a difference, and each week at second service, next steps is full with people who are taking that next step and getting plugged into the life of the church. And also in a few weeks, we're having baptism Sunday. And that's wonderful because we get to celebrate people who've met Jesus, how they go public with their faith. And I've already gotten several emails and signups from people that I know and love who are like, Pastor Byron, I'm ready to be baptized and I'm ready for them to be baptized too. And so if you're new, a Christian, and you haven't been baptized, we would love to baptize you. If you've been following Jesus for a while and you have not yet been baptized, what are you waiting for? We would love to baptize you. We'll dunk you. We'll hold you underwater just long enough, but we promise we'll bring you back up. But we would love to be able to celebrate Baptism Sunday with you. And it really is amazing because every single week, people like you is experiencing life change here at the church. And because there is so many people who are new, and so many of us have been hanging out for a while, we kind of sometimes forget I think the passage that we're going to study today is perfect because it really casts vision around, brings clarity to the type of church that I believe that God has really called us to be. And so some of you, you're new and you're, you're wondering, is this uh, the church for me? What does it look like for me to get involved here at Redemption? What does it look like for my family to be able to grow in my faith here at this church? And if you've been wondering that question, guess what? Today's the perfect day just for you because I get to share with you what I envision a perfect church member to look like. What I get to envision, what I believe a perfect church should be, I get to share my heart, my hope, my dreams about what it means for you to become a a perfect church member here at Redemption. So let me tell you what a perfect church member looks like. First of all is this, a perfect church member goes to church every single Sunday, never misses a week. That's what it means for you to be a perfect church member. You say, but what if the the kids are sick? Well, then you leave them at home. You gotta set a good example, right? You gotta be here every single week, but not just every single Sunday, but you gotta be here for every single event that we have. So whenever these doors are open, you're here. Prayer night, team night, serve night, vision night, worship night, women's group, except men, you're not allowed. Women's group, anytime these doors are open, you're expected to be here because that's what it means for you to be a perfect church member, that you're the first one in and you're the last one to leave. A perfect church member also tithes 10%, first and best to the Lord, off of your gross, not your net, right? You got to pay God before you pay your bills because it's really his money. He's just letting you borrow it. Quit being so stingy with God's money. A perfect church member, they, they tithe. A perfect church member also serves one and sits one every single week. But if you want to go a step further, you serve both because that's what it takes for you to be perfect. A perfect church member also is in a community group, but not just in a community group. They host their community group and and they cook a three-course meal for every single one of their guests every single week because that's what it takes for you to be a perfect church member. A perfect church member also reads their Bible every single day. And there's a certain way that a perfect church member is supposed to read their Bible. That They start and they read their Bible for um, about an hour in the morning before you go to work. It can't be after work. It can't be on your lunch break. It's got to be before. And you have to read um, an Old Testament passage preferably the book of Leviticus, 
and you would read the Old Testament passage, commit it to memory, and then when you're done with that, then you read one proverb and one psalm in that order. Okay, that's what it takes for you to be perfect. And then you gotta pray three times a day throughout the rest of the day. And you say, Pastor Byron, that sounds like a lot of work. I know, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of work for you to be perfect. But that's not all that there is. There's more, much more, yes, much more. A perfect church member also has to have orthodox theology. That for them, they believe that the Bible is God's word. It's 100%, it's true, that they are literalists when it comes to the scripture. They literally believe in a death, burial, resurrection, a second coming, a literal heaven, and a literal hell. They have perfect Orthodox theology, they have perfect sound doctrine. They only listen to the best podcasts, only listen to the best preachers, which is me, by the way. They only listen to the best sermons. They only read the best book, listen to the best blogs. They only follow the best teachers because they have orthodox theology, very sound doctrine. The perfect church member is pro-life, supports traditional marriage according to the Bible, and only believes in expositional preaching because here at Redemption, we preach the Bible, amen? Amen. That's what it takes for you to be a a perfect church member. In addition, there's more. A perfect church member also cries on the 4th of July. Okay, you hold your hand over your heart, you stand for the national anthem, you say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's what it means for you to be a perfect church member. A perfect church member doesn't watch R-rated movies, Game of Thrones, doesn't read Harry Potter. A perfect church member doesn't cuss, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chew, doesn't go with girls who do. And some of you think just because you vape, you're still perfect. No, you're not. That's annoying. Knock it off. It's not perfect. <laughs> A perfect church member also doesn't drink, ever, not even a drop. And some of you, you're wondering, well, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? No, it was grape juice, because Jesus, he was perfect. A perfect church member also doesn't know how to take a joke, thinks everything's super serious, and a perfect church member knows this, that if you're not perfect, then you're not welcome. How many of you, that's the church you want to be a part of? How many of you woke up this morning and you're like, I just really want to find the perfect church. And then you come to redemption and you think, oh, this is it. I found it, the, the perfect church. How many of you, you want to go to that church? How many of you, you want to be that church member? How many of you, that's exactly what you were wanting to hear today. How to be perfect. Nobody, what, no hands are raised? Nobody wants to be perfect? Okay, yeah, so Jesus, he goes to the equivalent of this church. If you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 7. We're going to see the equivalent of the church that I just described, and it's, we'll call it the first church of the Pharisees. So Jesus, he goes to church, and he sees the Pharisees. There's a conflict. There's a run-in between Jesus and this thing that we call religion, that, that the Pharisees, they're very strict. They're very devote. They're very pious, and they're actually just very religious, and Jesus goes to this church, and here's the deal. Jesus hates it. And so the sermon title today is this, Jesus Hates Religion. And before I dive into this, I need to add a little caveat, because anytime I rail against religion, some religious person always sends me an email with 10 reasons as to why they're not religious, which really only goes to serve my point. There is a difference between good religion and bad religion, okay? In the book of James, it says, pure and perfect religion, holy religion, that is pleasing and honor to God is this, that you take care of the orphans and the widows and those who are in need and you keep yourself unstained from the world. That's good religion. But today we're talking about bad religion, like the punk band, but only worse. We're talking about bad religion. And here's what religion is. Religion is man-made attempts to be able to earn God's favor and redemption for your life. That Religion is all about the outward appearance, your external work, what you do, how you live, how you can earn your righteousness and right standing from God based upon your external presence, your external works. That's, that's religion, that you're trusting in your works instead of trusting in Jesus' work. You're trusting in what you do instead of trusting in what Jesus has done. According to the Bible, that's what we call bad religion, and Jesus hates it. And today we're going to see three reasons that Jesus hates religion. The first is this, that religion goes beyond the Bible with its beliefs. Here's what we see starting in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, they came with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem. We'll pause right there. 
So you say, well, who's the Pharisees? Great question, glad you asked. The Pharisees, they're like the legalists. They're the very strict, adherent people who just follow the law and the word of God. They're super strict, very devoted, very religious, and they're also very self-righteous. And the Pharisees, they, they were the religious leaders that loved to enforce the law on all of the other people. And the Pharisees had this big, long list of do's and don'ts, checklists, and Excel spreadsheet of all the things that you must do if you want to be perfect, if you want to be like them, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be welcome in their church, you have to do what the Pharisees tell you to do. And so they have a long list of rules, regulations, and as we're going to see in a little bit, man-made traditions. And so the Pharisees, they're very popular, and then they start having these run-ins with Jesus, and Jesus and the Pharisees, they're constantly getting into fights. This is actually the sixth confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Mark, because the Pharisees, they say, Jesus doesn't do it our way. That Jesus doesn't do things the way that we do things. Jesus doesn't follow our rules. Jesus, why don't you follow our rules? And so the Pharisees, they see that Jesus is getting famous. He's getting popular. I mean, he just healed an entire city. Just think about that, right? That's like, you know, going to the doctor without having to pay a copay. It's amazing. Jesus just heals you. And then Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. People are like, this is incredible. He feeds people. He heals people. Let's, this is awesome. And then word gets out about Jesus that he's getting famous, he's trending on Twitter, he's number one on iTunes, he's gone viral. Everybody's talking about Jesus and they're not talking about the Pharisees anymore. So the Pharisees, they become very insecure and what they wanna do is they wanna attack him, they wanna ridicule him, they wanna try to discredit him, but they need to call for some backup and so they call up to Jerusalem to a group of people known as the scribes. And the scribes, now they're the real leaders. The Pharisees, they really just work for the scribes. And here's what the scribes are. The scribes, they live up in Jerusalem and they work in the temple and all day long, here's what they do. They read the Bible and then they list their interpretations. So they say, well, in the book of Leviticus, it says this, but let's go beyond Leviticus. Let's consider what this rabbi says and this rabbi says, and I think this is what it says, and I'm gonna make a list, and I'm gonna write a book, and there's gonna be footnotes and footnotes about the footnotes, and there's gonna be dead guys, and I've been pontificating today because that's what you do when you don't know what you do. You just pontificate and tell other people what they're supposed to do, and so they pontificate a whole lot. They sound very smart. They use big college words, and, and, and they just sit up in their office, and they write all the rules and then they enforce the rules through the Pharisees. So they say, well, this is what it says. This is what you're supposed to do if you want to be holy and righteous and religious. And then they hand it off to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees go around. They say, you need to do this. And you need to do that. And you're not doing this. And you're not doing that. And you're not like us. And so the Pharisees, they go up to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, you're not like us. So we got to call up to Jerusalem, tattle on you, get the scribes to come down. They make the 90-mile journey, and then they come to accuse Jesus. Well, here's how the story continues. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unclean. So the scribes, they come down from Jerusalem, watching, waiting, wanting to criticize Jesus, to ridicule him. They want to see him fail. They want to get angry. They want to get mad. And just so you know, if you're always looking for a reason to get angry, guess what? You're always going to find one. And so Jesus here, he's going to give them a reason to be angry. And they're watching, they're waiting, they're saying, Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus, are you going to mess up? Are you going to pray for the wrong person? Are you going to heal someone the wrong way? Are you going to preach the wrong sermon? Jesus, are you going to lead people straight? Is this going to be heresy? We're watching, we're waiting. What is Jesus going to do? And then all of a sudden, they find their moment. And here's what they say. Aha, Jesus, busted, we got you, sinner. Well, what did Jesus do? He didn't wash his hands before he ate. You think, Jesus, that's nasty. What do you mean you don't wash your hands? Jesus, that's gross. How could you and your disciples not wash your hands before you eat? Jesus, you're nasty. Now, for the Pharisees, this wasn't about hygiene. You see, we read it and we think about hygiene, like, you know, you wash your hands before you eat. At least that's what my wife tells me to do. 
and you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat, and it's for hygiene that you don't want to get sick, you don't want to spread germs, you don't want to, you know, get the flu or anything like that. But for them, this isn't an issue of hygiene. This is a matter of ritual cleansing and purity. See, they believe that if you didn't wash your hands, then you were unclean, then you were unworthy, then you were unwelcomed, defiling yourself, resulting in sin. And so they say, Jesus, you're in sin. Your disciples are in sin. You're not holy. You're not perfect. You're not righteous. You're filthy, dirty, vile, unclean, defiled, and you're not welcome. Now, we would read this and think, really? Because they didn't wash their hands? But this is important. And so Mark, what he does is he actually makes a parenthesis because remember, Mark's not writing to a Jewish people. He's writing to a Roman people about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so they weren't raised in church. They weren't raised religious. They weren't Jewish. Instead, they were Gentile, probably a lot like us. And so what he does is he adds this little parenthesis to be able to help us stupid Americans be able to understand it a little bit better. Because we hear hand washing, that's ah, ridiculous. But to them, it was something that's very important. And so here's what he says. He says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the tradition of the elders, important word, hold on to that. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay, we might read this and we might think, what does this have to do with us? What is first century Jewish ceremonial, ritual, hand-washing, rites, cleansing laws have to do with us all the way down here in 2019, Southeast Texas, in Beaumont, Redemption Church, what does this have to do with us? And we can read it on the surface and we think, well, this has nothing to do with me. But behind the scenes, digging down just a little bit deeper, we see that it has everything to do with us because Jesus is showing us one thing, that religious people go beyond the Bible with their beliefs. That's what religious people do. They go beyond the Bible with their Now, the issue here is around hand washing. So let me ask you a question. Is hand washing a good thing? Y'all better say it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. Like if we were to take a vote, who thinks we should wash our hands? Okay, please, thank you, Lord, yes. We hug a lot here. We shake a lot of hands at this church. So please do us a favor, wash your hands. Okay, but are you gonna go to hell if you don't wash your hands? No. Are we gonna bring you up on church discipline if you don't wash your hands? No, Right? We're not going to do those things, but that's exactly what the Pharisees, they were doing. And they were looking, waiting, watching for a moment or an opportunity to be able to strike, accuse at Jesus because Jesus, he didn't wash his hands. And here's what they say. If you don't wash your hands, you don't do it like us, then you're dirty, filthy, vile, unwanted, unwelcome. You're unclean because you didn't wash your hands. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, where's that at in the Bible that we have to do all of those things? Okay, and this word right here, it's called the tradition of the elders. I want you to hold on to that because that's very important. That when it says the tradition of the elders, it's not talking to the Bible. It's talking about their scripture, their, I mean, their tradition. The scripture here, this is God's word. Right, tradition of the elders is the oral word that's passed down through the scribes by the Pharisees and then enforced along all the people. So God says, okay, here's, a big, here's, here's some things that I want you to do. This is God's word. And then the tradition of the elders interprets God's word according to their own perception. And then they begin to apply it across all the people. And so they follow the tradition of elders. And it really comprises a book known as the Talmud. Okay, you think, ooh, Talmud, that sounds fancy. What, where's that out in the Bible? The answer is, it's not in there. Because it was human tradition, it was the tradition of the elders, and it has to deal with a whole lot of these things. And, and a lot of it, it deals with things like the Sabbath. Okay, now is the Sabbath a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? God says, hey, I want you to take a day off. How many of you say, that's a good thing? Right? I wish my boss believed in the Sabbath too. I would like to take a, a day off. God says, hey, I want you to take a Sabbath. I want you to honor it, keep it holy. I want you to be able to take a day off, a whole day just for you to be able to go to church, pray, read your Bible, take your family out to lunch, maybe go to the park, just relax, right? That's a day just for you. And God came up with the Sabbath. That was his idea. He invented it. 
See, in, in Genesis 1 through 3, God made everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested. And God's like, I'm a genius. This is incredible, right? I wish other people would be able to do that. And so God says, hey, I want you to take a Sabbath. Now, is Sabbath a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. But here's what religion does. Religion takes a good thing and turns it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything. So the scribes, they come along and they say, God said we need to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a book about how you're supposed to do it. And it has 36 chapters. God says don't work. So here's all the things you have to do in order for you to actually not work. Like that doesn't even make any sense. And they wrote 36 chapters on how, how we're supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy. And there were some crazy things in there. I mean, one of them was like this, that you can't actually pick up um, a handkerchief because that would be considered work. So here's what you got to do. You can tie a handkerchief around your neck. You can't carry it, but you can tie it around your neck. And you can wear it from one room to another room in order to blow your nose. You can take it off, blow your nose, but you have to put it back on. Because if you carry it, that's considered work. You can't throw it away either because that's considered work. I mean, one of them is like this, that you can't take a bath on the Sabbath day because if you spill water, then you're guilty of cleaning the floor. Okay, right? I wish my wife would understand that. Babe, I didn't spill it. I just cleaned it. Um, but that's just the way that it, it works. I mean, one of them was this, that you can spit on the ground on the Sabbath day because that would be considered gardening. One of them was like this. You can't pick up something heavier than the size of a date because that would be considered work, but you can pick up two things the equal size of a date, and then you could do that. And it's just all these crazy things because the scribes were like, we need to keep the Sabbath holy. It's a day where you're not supposed to work, and so here's a whole manual on how not to do work because that's what religion does. It takes a good thing, turns it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything. Another example would be that of fasting. Now, is fasting a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. We should fast. Fasting is where we voluntarily abstain from fleshly desires so that way we could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Fasting's a good thing. And in the Old Testament, it says that there's one day that we're supposed to fast. It's the day of atonement. It's the high holy day where people would go to the temple, they would make sacrifices for their sins, and they were to fast leading up to it. And then after the sacrifice is made, they were to go have a big feast with all their family. Okay, one day on the day of atonement. And then according to the Talmud, that they came along and the scribes were like, one day is not nearly enough. I know it only says one day, but God needs our help. Instead of just doing it one day, what we need to do is we need to do it twice a week. That's how super duper religious we are. God said do it once, but we're going to do it 112 times just so everybody knows how super devoted, pious, how religious and self-righteous we are. And then they began to fast two times a week. Now, is fasting a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. But religion comes along, and it takes a good thing, turns it into a bad thing, because religion ruins everything. And the situation today was that of hand washing. Now, it's true. In the book of Leviticus, there is a section that says that the priests are supposed to wash their hands, okay? Because the priests, they're performing sacrifices all day long. That all day they're making sacrifices and God says, hey, you know what? You keep killing all these animals. Like, that's just not, that's just, don't, you know, just wash your hands, please. Like, covered in blood and guts and intestines. Like, just go ahead, wash your hands. You set it on fire and then you're going to go eat some food. Just please do me a favor and wash your hands. God was doing that because he wanted to protect the priests. And just side note is that, do you know what they found the cure to the bubonic plague being? Washing your hands. You know how they figured that out? They read the book of Leviticus. They're like, we keep touching all these dead people. Maybe we should wash our hands. And then they did it. And it was like, wow, that worked. See, washing your hands is a good thing. And then somebody comes along and says, if the priests are supposed to wash their hands, well, then everybody needs to wash their hands. And not only before they eat, but we also need to do it after we eat and between each and every meal. And just in case you don't understand how to wash your hands, we wrote a book that has 26 chapters on the proper way that you are supposed to wash your hands. And so then they stop thinking, they're like, well, if washing your hands is good, maybe we need to do a little bit more. Instead of just washing our hands, 
hands, what if we also wash them when we wake up, wash them whenever we go to the town? What if we wash them when we come back, before we eat, middle of the meal, between each course, after we eat, before we go to sleep? Why stop at washing your hands? Let's also wash copper pots. Let's wash our cups. Let's wash our bowls. Let's wash our dining couches. Whoever came up with that one, anal retentive for sure, because I know that's exactly what I'm thinking. Every time community group happens, we need to wash our couch. And that's what religious people do, that they get so serious, then they take a good thing, twist it, and make it a bad thing. And they got so into the details that there was a certain way you have to do it. So here's what they would do. They, they would, you have to hold your hand just like this in a nice little cup, and then you take the, the washing cup. It has two handles. You have to hold on the left handle, not the right handle. Don't want to get us confused. And then you gently pour it over the hand, down the arm. It's got to come down the side of the elbow. You pour it in. You set it down. And then you got to do it with a closed fist. You can't do it with an open fist because open fists are for sinners. Closed fist, that's how we do it. And you wash and you scrub that hand. And then as soon as you finish, you're not finished. You got to do it on the other side now. And then you pour it gently down, scrub it with those hands, and and if you don't do it like us, well, guess what? You're filthy, you're dirty, you're unclean, you're unwelcome. And Jesus comes along and they say, Jesus, you eat with unclean hands. And Jesus says, where's that at in the Bible? He said, oh, don't read the Bible, it's not in there. I said, I know, because here's the deal. Religion goes beyond the Bible with their beliefs. Jesus comes and says, that's dumb, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. According to me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the Bible. We love the Bible, which means we don't feel the need to go beyond it. Jesus says, that's not in the Bible, so I'm not going to follow your list, your rules, or your man-made traditions. But here's the question. I wonder how many churches today Jesus wouldn't be welcomed at because he doesn't follow their tradition. Jesus, oh, you're walking through, I mean, we need to have a talk, Jesus. Right, that long hair, mm-mm, no, we can't deal with that long hair in this church. That beard, no, men here, clean shaven, can't walk in. Hey, Jesus, let's talk about your friends. Right, you keep hanging out with all those sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. We don't like people like that. Jesus, we need to talk about your friends. Jesus, at this church, we King James only. Jesus, at this church, we sing hymns. Jesus, at this church, we speak in tongues. No, at this church, we don't speak in tongues. Jesus, at this church, the, the women wear dresses. They don't cut their hair. They wear it in a nice little beehive. In this church, we do this. In this church, we act this certain way because this is the way that it's been. This is the way that it's always been. And Jesus, if you're not like us, guess what? You're not welcome here. I wonder how many churches today Jesus is not welcomed at because he doesn't follow their tradition. Now, am I against tradition? No, not at all. But anytime tradition becomes equal with the scripture, you're no different than a Pharisee. Listen, even at redemption, we have our own traditions. One tradition for us is that we take Holy Communion every single week. Something you can expect that we do. Every single week, that's the way we do it. But if we ever get to a place to where we say we're more holy than other churches because we take it every week, we're no different than the Pharisees. We take a good thing and a bad thing because religion ruins everything. Another tradition that we have here is multiple services. So we have a 9 o'clock, we have an 11 o'clock, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a 5.30 p.m. service. Okay, that's just the way that we do things, and our services start on time. I mean, how many of you are glad that we don't start service at 11.22? No, we start at 11. That's a tradition that we have. Now, if we ever get to the point where we say, oh, three service churches, those are the best churches. One service church, they're not nearly as holy as us. Then we become just like the Pharisees. Another example for us is that we encourage people to serve one, sit one. And if we don't serve one, sit one, oh, you're not holy. You're not welcome here at our church. Another example we have is expositional preaching. That for us as a church, we preach straight through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, chapter one, all the way till the very end. That's just the way that we do things. But if we ever get to a place as a church where we say, if you don't preach straight through the Bible, you're in sin. They were no different than the Pharisees. There is no verse that says, thou shalt preach expositional preaching. 
Right? That's, that's just not in there. Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, preach the word. It doesn't matter if it's topical, textual, expositional, whatever it is, as long as the Bible is preached, I believe that God is pleased. And anytime we go beyond the Bible with our beliefs, we become no different than the Pharisees. That even in this church, we can take a good thing and we can turn it into a bad thing because of religion. And religion ruins everything. Listen, I love the Bible. I believe the Bible. I believe that this is God's word, that this word is 100% true, that it's trustworthy, timeless, tells me exactly who God is, what God does, how I'm supposed to live, that's the final rule and authority in the life of the believer. I love the Bible so much that I won't let you go beyond it. The Bible doesn't need your help. It's sufficient on its own. And if you come here to redemption and you have a long list of rules and you got another book that you want us to follow, feel free to burn it. Because guess what? This is a big book. There's a lot in there. There's a lot we're still struggling, striving, and trying to figure out. We don't need you to add your list to what God's already doing in our lives. The Bible is enough. It doesn't need your help. And so Jesus gets angry, hates religion, because it goes beyond the Bible with its beliefs. Which leads to the second reason that Jesus hates religion is because it's all lip service and it's no life change. So how do you think Jesus is gonna respond? How do you think Jesus is gonna react to the accusations that come from the Pharisees? He's in the middle of the church, they just come up to him, they begin to accuse him. How do you think Jesus is going to respond? I love this because here's what Jesus does. He calls them hypocrites. I love that. Why? Because Jesus hates religion. Because religion is all lip service and no life change. In verse 6, and he said to them, so Jesus is going to reply. This is what he says. Well, I love that, right? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That you can say one thing, and your heart can be in a totally different place. You honor me with your lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Now, whenever we read the Bible, typically here's what people think about Jesus. They think, oh, Jesus was so sweet. Jesus was so kind. Jesus, he was so nice. I mean, I read it. And Jesus, uh, Here's what I picture. I picture Jesus sitting under a tree, and he's cross-legged, and he's got a lamb, and he's got a child, and his disciples are around them, and Jesus is just sitting there. He's quoting, you know, giving some pithy Zen-like statements. He, he's drinking decaf coffee, and, and that's Jesus giving the peace sign. That's what we envision Jesus as, and we think Jesus would never say anything to offend anybody. Jesus, he would never get into an argument. Jesus, he would never get into a fight. Now, when we read the Bible, we got to understand that whenever Jesus speaks to sinners or people who are hurting or people who are in need or people who are healing, he is always very gracious, patient, and he's always very kind. But whenever it comes to speaking to religious people, he's very bold. Because when it comes to religious people, you have to be bold. And when it comes to them, he says some very stern words. When it comes to speaking to the religious people, he calls it exactly as he sees it. And here's what Jesus says to them. You hypocrites! In front of everybody. Well, didn't Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites? That for you, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him and your worship is in vain. Jesus straight up calls these dudes hypocrites. In the Greek, the word hypocrite, it means one who wears a mask. It's in reference to somebody who's an actor in a play that they're playing a part, they're, they're pretending, they're wearing a mask. Jesus straight up calls these dudes fake in front of everybody. Why? Because 
They're all lip service and they have no life change. See, see here's what's interesting. He says, he says, your worship is in vain. I want, I want you to just think about that for a sec. That you can have worship that is actually worthless. And this looks like when you go to church and, and you can raise your hands really high. God says, I don't see those hands. You can give 10%. God says, I ain't gonna bless it. That, that for you, you can pray and God's not gonna hear your prayers. That you can sing and God's not gonna receive your worship. Why? Because your worship is in vain. Because you're honoring with your lips, but you're denying him with your life. And yeah, for sure, you can, you, you can post all of the great Bible verses on Instagram. You can share the version stories. You can hashtag blessed and you can still be worthless because you have all lip service and you have no life change, that you can go to church every single week and that doesn't earn you a spot in heaven, it just gives you skips in the line to hell. Because it's all lip service and it's no real, true, genuine life change. For the Pharisees, they look good on the outside, but on the inside, they were disgusting. You could look at them through a picture and they looked perfect, but if you look through them, with an x-ray, they were diseased because they worshiped in vain. Your worship, if it's religious, is worthless, pointless, it's pathetic. Jesus says, straight up, you're a hypocrite because it's all lip service and it's no life change. Now, here at Redemption, we have a saying. That Redemption Church experience exists so people can experience life change. That's why we're here. That's the whole reason that Redemption Church exists. And every single week, we have people who are coming into our church for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. And here's what they're looking for. Is there a life change for me? Is there an opportunity for me to receive grace, for me to receive hope? Is this place welcoming for me? Is this a place that I can bring my family to begin to grow in my faith? Is this a place where my sins can be forgiven, where I can be vulnerable, I can be open? It's a safe place for me to experience life change. And every single week, we have new people, new guests walking in those doors from all different backgrounds, all different beliefs and upbringings. We have rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian, men, women walking in those doors, and here's what they want to know. Will Jesus save me? And here we tell them every single week that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've gone through, life change is possible, that Jesus loves you, Jesus seeks you, Jesus serves you, Jesus saves you, and in him, you can have a new heart, a new hope, you can have new purpose, new passion, you can have a new life through Jesus. Religion is the opposite of that. Religion says, you want life change? Here's what you got to do. You got to wash your hands. <laughs> you have to fast two times a week. You have to observe the Sabbath. If you want to be like us. Now we read that and we think hand washing. But you know what? The truth is, is, we still have the same problems because we have a natural inclination to be able to think that what we do determines how much we're loved. And that's exactly what religion is, that if I do these things, then God will love me. That if I do these things, then God will save me. If I do these things, then God will forgive me. And they grew up under tradition of man and they confused tradition with scripture but we do the exact same thing. I was talking with a girl the other day who was at Home Depot, and she had a tattoo of a cross on her hand. So I said, hey, are you a Christian? And she says, no, I'm Catholic. It's the same thing. <laughs> but what happens is, not only your tradition, but even your denomination begins to define you. Look, I'm not against denominations, but I'm for the scripture. 
See, for me, I'm Assemblies of God. I'm an ordained Assemblies of God pastor. Our church is affiliated with the Assemblies of God, but the Assemblies of God doesn't determine the way that I read the scripture. See, my scripture determines the denomination. It's not the other way around. And some of you, you come from different backgrounds. I know in a church like ours, there's people from all different walks of life. Me and Ashley and my papa are probably the only AG people in this church. Most of you, you come from like a Baptist background, or maybe you come from an Episcopalian background. Maybe you're Presbyterian. Maybe you're raised Catholic. Maybe you're raised my favorite denomination, non-denomination. But whatever it is for you, if you're not careful, your tradition can become more comfortable to you than the scriptures. You say, this is the way that I was raised. This is the way that I like it. This is the way that it's been. This is the way that it's always been. And for me, that's what it, I don't care the way that you were raised. I care about what this book says. I don't care about the church you grew up in. I care about what this book says. I don't care about what denomination you're a part of. I care about what this book says. That's what's important to me. That's what matters to me. Not the tradition of man, but the word of God. And many people, they think, Because I do these things, I'm more loved by God. That's the same reason that some people say, well, how do you know you're holy? How do you know you're right with God? How do you know you're saved? Some people would say, it's because I speak in tongues. I'm holy. Some people would say, it's because, well, women don't cut their hair or women don't wear makeup. That's how we know that they're right with God. Some people would say that it's because at our church we don't have musical instruments. Some people would say, well, I know that we're right with God because, well, I'm a good, decent, moral person. Can I just tell you that's not how it works? That you don't go to heaven because you're a good person. In fact, there is no good people. The Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says that nobody's perfect, that not one, not even one, no one is righteous. All sinners fallen, separated from God, deserving his wrath. There is no one righteous, not even one. And someone would be like, no, actually, I think I'm a pretty good person. The Bible would say, sit down, you're proud. doesn't count. You don't go to heaven for being a good person. Some people think, well, if I'm just a good person, that if I just work hard, if I try hard, if I walk my dog, pay my taxes, and don't beat my wife, that makes me better than everybody else. You don't go to heaven for being a good person. And other people would think, well, I know I'm going to go to heaven because, well, because, well, you know, I was baptized whenever I was a baby. I love you, but that's not how it works. You have parents who loved you and cared for you. Your grandparents were probably just doing the best thing they knew how to do for you, but all they knew was the tradition of man. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that your baptism gets you guaranteed into heaven. That's not how it works. That baptism is a believer's baptism by immersion. That it's a public display of your profession of faith. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And what religion would want to do is take something beautiful like baptism and make it into a man-made tradition. I mean, we could keep going. Some people, they think once saved, always saved. I prayed a prayer when I was in junior high, and then the evangelist came in, bopped me on the head, and now I can live however I want because, well, I've been saved. Just so you know, that's, again, not how it works. But what you can do is you can take your upbringing, and you can make it a tradition, and you can elevate it to the place of Scripture. And Jesus says, all that is is lip service to me. Because there's no real, true, genuine life change. And this is the reason that that Jesus, he violently confronts this issue of religion. Because for some, it's all lip service. And there's no real, true, genuine life change that takes place. On the outside, it looks great. But on the inside, it's damaging. And a lot of you, you're new Christians. And so let 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 me give you a warning For a lot of you, you're new Christians, and I want you to be very careful. I don't want you to be deceived by lip service. I want you to be devoted to life change. Because you can look at somebody on the outside, and you can think, man, they look like they have it all together. Look at the way that they read their Bible. Look at the way that person prays. Look at, look at their, their, their Instagram feed has the perfect filter and the perfect verse. Look at all those hashtags. I want to be just like them. And you could think, well, they go to church 
every week, and so I want to go twice a week. They read their Bible every day, so I'm going to read it twice a day. They pray, and so I'm going to pray twice. And you can say, I want to be just like them. I love you, but that's not how it works. The goal is not to be like them. The goal is to be like Jesus. The goal is not to look like them. The goal is for you to look like Jesus. The goal is not for you to follow them. The goal for you is to follow Jesus. Don't be deceived by lip service. Instead, be devoted to life change that only comes from him. Which leads us to the third and final reason that Jesus hates religion. And it's probably the most violent reason that he does. And here's the reason why. It's because religion hurts people instead of helping them. Here's what he says. For Moses said, you honor the... Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Old Testament quotation there. But you say, they're going beyond the Bible. If a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they come down from Jerusalem, waiting, watching, wanting to criticize, discredit, put his disciples to shame in Jesus' ministry. They want to declare him as a sinner and a heretic in front of everybody else. Jesus then, he responds by attacking the scribes and the Pharisees, their tradition of the elders, and now he's going to attack their interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And here he actually quotes from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were a law that God gave to Moses in the middle of the exile on the way to the place of the promised land. Okay, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Exodus wherever God raised up a prophet named Moses who delivered God's people from a wicked Pharaoh and he took them from Egypt through the wilderness on the way into the promised land. And while they were in the middle of the wilderness... God gave them some laws. God gave them 10 commandments, and he says, I want you to live by these because these commandments are going to be able to keep you. These commandments are not just laws to be able to ruin your life. These are ways in which God wants to protect you. That God says, this is the way to life. This is a revealing of my nature, my character, and it's allowing you to be able to have a relationship with me. That's the reason of the law. And it's the commandments, and it's God's word. And so when you're reading the Bible and you come across something, I want you to understand this, that if it's in God's word, then it's for your good. That God, he means this for good. God doesn't write it down because it's mean or vindictive or cruel, and he wants your friends to laugh at you and totally be lame, and he's a total buzzkill, and he's no fun. That's not the reason that God's word's there. It's there because he loves you. He wants to help you. And so God says, here's the Ten Commandments. This is my law. And Jewish scholars, they refer to the law as like a fence. Okay, how many of you have a fence at your house? Okay, fences, good things or bad things? Good things. A fence is there for your protection. And the Jewish scholars, they would say that the law is a fence, and it's there for our protection. And the Ten Commandments, they're good things. But what man-made tradition does is it comes along and it takes a good thing, makes it a bad thing, and it ruins everything. That the tradition of the elders, the scribes, what they eventually did is they, they turned the fence that was for protection into a prison. They started using God's word, which is good, in order to be evil towards other people. That they took what God said, this is to help people, and they twisted it, and they ended up hurting others. And so Jesus says, okay, the Ten Commandments, let's take that. Number five, honor your mother and father. Good thing. God says, hey, you want to live a long life? It's the only command that comes with the blessing. Honor your mother and your father. That things are going to go well for you. You know, you're going to have memories. You're going to make a couple of moments. You're going to get wisdom, understanding. Honor your mother and father. It's good enough. See, then you grow up. You move out of the house. You make a little bit of money. Buy your own house, you get married, you're doing pretty good for yourself. But your parents, they fall on hard times. That maybe your dad gets injured at work, or maybe your mom gets sick, maybe they lose their job, they don't have a 401k or any retirement saved up, their house gets foreclosed, the bank's coming for them, and they come knocking on your door and they say, son, we're in some really hard times, can we come stay with you? You say, mom, I, I would love to, but you can't. Well, why not? Korban. Korban, you think, what does that mean? It means given to God. 
I would love to let you come stay at my house, but this isn't my house anymore. This is Corban. This is God's house. Sorry, mom. I would love to give you 20 bucks, but it's God's 20 bucks. Corban, none for you. I would love to be able to give you a ride, but actually this isn't my car. I know, I drive it every single day, but it's not mine. Corban, it's God's car. Sorry, I can't give you a ride to work. I would love to be able to help you, but Corban, instead I'm gonna let you suffer. Instead I'm gonna let you be in shame. Instead of helping you, I'm gonna hurt you. Now it's true, in the Old Testament, there was a clause that allowed you to dedicate something to the Lord and call it Corban. But that was to be given towards the sacrifice and the priests. And what they did is they took what God meant for good and they used it for evil. They thought they found a loophole in the law to be able to excuse their sin. They said, instead of helping you, we're gonna hurt you. Instead of using what God gave for protection, we're gonna turn this into a prison. And we're gonna rule you, we're gonna manipulate you, we're gonna master you, we're gonna hurt you. And that's exactly what religion does. That religion hurts people instead of helps them. How many people do you know who have been hurt by the church? How many people do you know who say, the reason that I don't believe in God is because I was hurt by the church. The reason that I don't follow after Jesus is because I was hurt by the church. The reason that I don't pray or don't read my Bible or I don't follow after him is because I was hurt by the church. Let me suggest something to you. You weren't hurt by the church. You weren't hurt by Jesus. You were hurt by religion. Because the church is to help people. Religion hurts them. Jesus heals people. Religion hurts them. There's a difference between Jesus and religion. And so listen to me. If that's you, if you're raised in a church to where you feel like you've been hurt, let me just submit something to you. That you weren't hurt by the church. You weren't hurt by Jesus. You were hurt by religion. Don't blame everyone else for one idiot who is being a jerk. Not all churches are like that. Not all people are like that. In Beaumont, there's 200 churches. Most of them are doing a bang-up job. If you've been hurt by the church, just go find another one. If you've been hurt by the church, don't give up on Jesus. Give up on religion. Because religion hurts people instead of helps them. I meet people all the time that come into redemption and they say, I grew up in a very strict religious environment. I grew up with very strict parents. There was rules and rules about the rules. There was a long list of things that I had to do and a whole list of things that I didn't have to do. And I just didn't know if I could do church anymore. And then I came to redemption and here's what you did. You opened up the Bible and then you just started talking about Jesus. And you know, for most of my life, I thought I hated church. Turns out I really just hated religion. Good news is Jesus hates it too. I meet people who come into the church and they say, you know, I just don't think that I can be perfect. I don't think that I can do all the right things. I know there's sin in my life. I know I'm messed up. I know I'm jacked up, but I just don't know what to do. I don't know if I could take any more pressure or any more burden on my life. What do I need to do? That I can't come to church because I'm not clean. I can't follow Jesus because, well, I got to earn my spot. There's a couple of things that I have to do before I'm able to come to church. I need to get my life in order. I need to be clean. And I would say, no, friend, you don't have to. That you don't clean your hands. Jesus cleans your heart. That it's not just about clean hands. It's about coming to Jesus just as you are, broken, hopeless, in a place of need, desperate, needing him. And you come to him just as you are. And Jesus cleanses you of all your unrighteousness. That it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about how hard you work. It's about the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross in your place for your sins. It's not about you. It's all about him. I say, really? Yeah. That's amazing. I know. That's why we call it the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. And so what I want to do as I close is I want to give you 10 differences between the gospel and religion. 
This is so important for us because here at Redemption, we exist to be a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. And it's all about the gospel. And if there's one thing that will ruin a gospel-centered movement, it's this, religion, because religion ruins everything. And so briefly, let me give you 10 differences between religion and the gospel. Number one is this, that religion says, God will love me if I obey, that I have to obey God first, and then he will love me after, that if I do this and don't do that, if I jump through the hoops, follow the rules, then God will love me. The gospel says that God loves me, therefore I will obey. Do you see the difference? See, religion is like me looking at my two-year-old daughter, Esther's son, and saying, if you obey me, maybe I'll be your daddy. That's religion. The gospel says that God loves you, and it's from the love that God has towards you. Are you able to freely be obedient and following after him? Do you see the difference? It's so subtle, but you got to get this because it's so important that we don't obey so God will love us. We obey because God already has. The second difference is this, that religion says that there's good people and bad people. Okay, and you know who the bad people are because they don't look like you. They don't look like you. They don't act like you. They don't vote like you. They don't dress like you. Those are the bad people, but we are the good people. The gospel comes along and says, you're all bad. The, how's that for equality? People are like, oh, I believe in equality. We do too. You're all bad. You sin one way, they sin another way, but your sin is equal. The gospel doesn't see good people, bad people. Here's what the gospel sees. People and Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus. Number three, the difference between the religion and the gospel is this, that religion is all about what you do. You gotta do this. You can't do that. You have to do this. You gotta do this. And if you don't do this and you mess up, then you're wrong. It's all about what you do. So you gotta work harder, try harder, be better, do better, wash your hands. The gospel says it's all about what Jesus has done. That on the cross, he paid it all. He said it is finished. It's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done in my place because of my sin. He died the death that I didn't deserve. And then Jesus gives me grace, hope, mercy. It's not about what I do. It's all about what Jesus has done. Number four, religion says this. Religion is about what you get from God. That if you tithe, if you fast, if you wash your hands, if you Sabbath, well, then God owes you. You've earned this. You deserve this. That you can pray hard enough and God's a pinata. You can whack him in heaven. You can twist his arm, manipulate him to give you whatever it is that you want. Religion is about getting from God. The gospel is about getting God himself. That in the gospel, you get God that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and that Jesus sends the promise of the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to reside with you, that in the gospel, you get God. Yeah. Number five, religion says this. Religion is all about punishment. That if you mess up, God is gonna punish you. That like God is some drunk dad up in heaven just waiting for you to mess up so he can kick you. The gospel is all about forgiveness. You don't have to be afraid of God. You can go to him wherever you're at, whatever you're going through. He loves you. He'll welcome you, and he's going to forgive you. See, religion is about punishment. The gospel is about forgiveness. Number six is this. That religion is self-centered. It's all about me. It's all about what I do. It's all about how I live. Everybody come look at me. Everybody come see me. Watch me honor the Sabbath. Watch me fast two times a week. Watch me wash my hands because it's all about me. Gospel is all about Jesus. That it's Christ-centered. That I didn't do it. He gave it. Therefore, I get to love other people now. It's Christ-centered, others-oriented, to love God and to love people. That I get to serve, I don't have to. I get to give now, 
I don't have to give, but I get to. I want to because when I give, I'm making a difference in somebody else's life. That it's not about me being self-centered. It's about me being Christ-centered and others-oriented. Do you see the difference? We'll move on. And number seven is this, that religion focuses on the external. It's all about how you look. But the gospel says God looks on the inside. That man looks on the outside, but God looks within. It's not about the external. It's about the internal. It's not about lip service. It's about life change. Number eight, here's where we see the difference between religion is that it produces anxiety. What if I don't do it right? What if I mess up? What if I fail? What if I make a mistake? What if people know I'm not perfect? What if people know I'm not holy? What happens if people find out about me? What if they know I'm a fraud? What if they know I'm a failure? What if they know I'm a hypocrite? What if I mess up and sin? It produces anxiety. The gospel produces assurance. I don't lose my salvation when I sin because there's forgiveness available for me. I've been sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit and I know I can go to God and that I might have messed up, but he's gonna love me, he's gonna forgive me. And I can go to him and I can have full assurance of the hope of salvation that I have. Number nine, religion says this. Religion leads to pride. God sure is lucky that he has me on my team. God sure is lucky that he has me. Religion leads to pride. But the gospel, the gospel leads to joy. That I get to serve. That I get to be saved. I get to be forgiven. I get to be healed. I get new life. It leads to joy. And lastly, number 10 is this. That religion says, if you aren't perfect, then you're not welcome. The gospel says nobody's perfect and everyone is welcome because the truth is that there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect church member. We're all imperfect people following after a perfect savior. And so if you come to redemption and you're jacked up and you're messed up, then you'll fit right in because there's no one perfect. All we are is imperfect people following after a perfect savior. And we're gonna sin and we're gonna fall and we're gonna fail and we're gonna make mistakes. But you know what? We're all in this together. No matter your background, no matter your belief, no matter your upbringing, we can come along around the good news of the gospel that we've all been forgiven. We've all been saved. And we don't have to clean our hands because he cleans our hearts. That's the good news of the gospel, that nobody's perfect and everyone is welcome. And so if you come to redemption and you're jacked up, welcome, we love you. And if you come to redemption and you're religious, knock it off because you're making the rest of us look bad. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.